welcome to the Decoding Sustainable Finance podcast, brought to you by Arabesque. My name is Ulrike Hasselén, I am a partner at Arabesque and I head up our business in the Nordics. And in case you don't know us, Arabesque is a sustainability technology company and we're built on the two disruptors of modern finance, ESG and AI, to deliver sustainable intelligence for corporates and capital markets. We believe economic value creation can and should be combined with environmental stewardship, social inclusion, and also good governance. And through our AI technology, we can assess vast, complex data sets to identify patterns to support better investment decision-making. Now, Arabesque is also a house full of brilliant minds. And throughout this podcast series, they will help me decode sustainable finance and what it really means. A big driver of sustainability in finance is the increased regulations. This is worldwide. In Europe, we have the proposed EU taxonomy. In the US, the Securities Exchange Commission, the SEC, has launched a review of climate-related disclosure for public companies and steps are taken across the globe to streamline and standardize the disclosure of non-financial metrics. So I'm thinking, what does this mean for a company? And what does it mean for an investor or an asset manager? I'm delighted to be joined today by my colleague, Dr. Ina Amesheva, who is Director of ESG Regulatory Solutions. Welcome, Ina. Thank you so much, Erika. It's great to be here. Lovely. Ina, let's start with a bit of background. What brought you to Arabesque? Great. Thanks, Erika. Well, my love story with Arabesque goes back already, I guess, four years ago when the company just launched its its S-ray business um, out of our asset management operations. So at that time, I was just completing my PhD in international climate law at the University of Hong Kong. And uh, I read an article that was announcing the launch of S-ray. So when I was reading that, uh, the combination between technology, big data, sustainability, and finance just grabbed my attention immediately. So um, I was smitten by what the company uh, was doing so I immediately reached out to to the team members and I expressed my interest to join the company just because I think those are really the most important um, not only trends in the financial services industry but also developments that will help um, both corporates investors financial markets and regulators uh, truly mainstream sustainable finance so um, yeah this is my um, in a nutshell my story about joining our VASC and uh, three years later I'm, I've been with the company ready uh, for three years and that's been a wonderful journey so far lovely Ina you have to give a, a short deeper dive into international climate law I mean this is so timely today isn't it Indeed, indeed. The climate landscape has evolved already since uh, we had uh, earlier in the 90s, we had the Kyoto Protocol. And in 2015, um, the the international community adopted the Paris Agreement, which I'm sure our listeners are are also quite familiar with, in addition to the Sustainable Development Goals, uh, the Sustainable Development Development Framework that came out of the UN. So that's been an entire raft of climate change-related and sustainability-related policies 
countries um, around the world, both at the supranational level, but also national jurisdictions and local um, municipalities adopting different types of regulations relating to climate, but we can see more and more related to uh, also the private sector. So what would be the private sector role in tackling these global challenges? And I think this is where um, it's very important to be able to drill under the surface of what companies are actually doing, um, what they're disclosing, what data they are actually providing regarding their sustainability performance. Um, hence, it's a really data-driven approach to sustainability. So it all ties up to the uh, global regulatory landscape, but we can see that it's a holistic approach whereby every single actor can make a difference in actually um, improving and changing their policies and their actions regarding uh, sustainability. Mm. I want just to touch a little bit on because before you joined Arabesque, you worked with the UN Sustainable Development Solutions Network. Um, what were you doing there, and and how has the work around the SDGs developed uh, in the last few years? My work at the UNSDSN actually was um, motivated by the fact that I always wanted to do something on the ground. Um, even in addition to my PhD, I always wanted to be involved in uh, different entrepreneurial related efforts as to how we can actually achieve these goals in practice, because otherwise we risk staying in our ivory towers and just talking academically about these topics. Um, but that I was motivated to join SDSN Youth because this is essentially a youth-driven organization that is in empowering young people who are working on um, solutions to tackle the SDGs or to uh, create um, different types of um, companies and projects to, to help address the SDGs. Um, so we were involved in capacity building, financing, um, looking at uh, mentorship and various collaboration opportunities with these young people. Um, so it was really a wonderful experience to help me uh, see how those SDGs can be actually fulfilled by um, young people who will be largely impacted by these challenges in the future. Um, and we can see we're already more than halfway through. I mean, we have only 10 years to achieve the SDGs or not even 10 years now. Um, the, the global uh, sustainable development agenda is due to be fulfilled by 2030. Um, so time is ticking and we can see that this is a very important framework, but implementation is a key point. Um, it's a really a key part of it in making it happen. Great. I think, I mean, yes, time is ticking. I would even argue that it's flying uh, in terms of the challenges and, uh, that we see around the world. But uh, I want to come back to your role in uh, at Arabesque. What, what do you do um, in your job? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, when I joined the company about three years ago, we were still quite small. Uh, we were just about 40 people globally, and now we've grown to nearly 300. So you can see that exponential growth story. Um, so in the beginning, I was still part of our research team, but focusing on a variety of projects. And now I've really refocused my efforts specifically on building out our regulatory products and solutions, um, especially given we have uh, so many recent developments just over the the last couple of years focusing on the European Green Deal and as you mentioned the EU taxonomy and various other regulations in the EU but also globally uh, regulators are waking up to the necessity of introducing more standardized disclosures. So what I'm doing is actually developing data and reporting tools to help our clients, um, investors and corporates to fill these ever-growing reporting needs um, in a nutshell. But um... 
Given your role in uh, and also your background in international climate law, this can be this can be perceived as quite high level, right? And and we know that the SDGs are targeting countries, but all stakeholders and and companies and investors within a country has sort of an obligation to to contribute. But if if we if we look at sort of the ESG regulatory landscape, how how is it how is it actually relevant for individual investors, whether they are large institutional investors, pension funds, but also individual investors? How how can how can investors really use uh, the regulatory um, frameworks for their work? Great, that's great. I think now we can see that the regulations that are coming up uh, in the EU and globally are impacting every single segment of the market, especially financial market participants, and as you mentioned, investors from institutional to retail, uh, of course, in different ways. So um, the use cases or the motivation of regulators to uh, launch different types of requirements um, are spanning different types of uh, reasons. So for instance, for the retail segment, they really want to protect retail investors to introduce more transparency and to introduce even uh, green eco labels or investment labels to to be able to uh, provide that level of transparency and clarity to retail investors that don't have the necessary level of sophistication to at least be able to determine if they want to invest in a sustainable investment product um, that this actually meets meets those key criteria for the institutional segment given that this is um, the more sophisticated um, part of the market, we have much more detailed requirements in terms of actual disclosures by, by those investors who are themselves investing in line with responsible investment strategies. So we see very granular data disclosure requir- requirements applicable to the investors themselves now um, who are actually professing to be uh, pursuing a, a sustainable investment strategy. Um, so you can see it's impacting the markets in quite different ways, but overall with the same objective towards strengthening capital markets, introducing more resilience, more transparency, and this overall direction towards long-termism. Because I think what we have also seen is that sustainability used to be quite a a philosophical topic relevant to the marketing department or um, only appearing here and there in the uh, very nice, nicely written uh, CSR reports, but it was not relevant to the C-level um, executives. Now that this has completely changed. We can see that um, ESG and sustainability is in the boardroom. It's on the agendas of key, key executives. Um, and this is not only driven by regulation, but also by market demand. So those two forces are really working in tandem to um, truly make sustainability integrated into corporate strategy. I want, I want to pick up on, on what you said in uh, regarding transparency. I think this is, of course, key for, for retail investors and institutional investors in, uh, in this uh, sometimes uh, uh, challenging landscape of, of navigating uh, between all the regulatory frameworks and, and, uh, and requirements. But from our research, we know that you know, many countries are still lagging behind their own targets for emission reductions and ESG disclosure. Do you think that the increased regulations, are are they enough to sort of fill this gap? 
Yes, I think that's an important distinction actually between country-level reporting and then private sector reporting because countries are usually the slow movers <laughs> you know it takes many many years before a country can adopt its own let's say climate change law or um, sustainability related um, governance policies that apply throughout the entire um, country so we can see even due to um, the Paris Agreement and the aftermath, we have had a bit more disclosure on the country level, but this is still a slow process. The corporate sector, on the other hand, is moving quite quickly, and we have seen that as well, not only due to the regulations, but when the corporate sector, especially driven by invested demand, decides to go in a certain direction, this can be also another powerful driver for disclosure. Even going back to the Paris Agreement, uh, we can see that a lot of um, corporates and national um, municipalities have petitioned governments to undertake more ambitious climate action. So there's bottom-up ambition as well coming up from the private sector. Again, those two forces working in tandem towards uh, greater disclosure over time. And we know this is a process that is, uh, is not happening overnight, but it will likely take at least a few years before we take, um, take stock of the disclosure and then make it making it actionable through analytics and different types of um, data reporting tools. Ina, I want to, I want to touch upon um, the need of quality data uh, and actual data uh, based on the regulatory requirements, based on the taxonomy, based on, on, the, on the different frameworks. We all know that this is a challenge. How, how should companies go about to uh, report and disclose data that is actually that can be used by investors uh, to make informed investment decisions and really data that is actionable uh, within the regulatory space as we sometimes say the devil is in the data and that's that's a crucial point disclosures transparency robust and harmonized reporting will be key to actually implementing all of this ambitious regulatory agenda that we have on the table um, and corporates and investors are dealing with quite an uncertain landscape because um, as you know and our listeners probably know uh, the regulations are changing by the day we have new developments coming up on a weekly basis with new regulatory technical screening criteria that are outlining what should be reported and when and the timelines timelines themselves are also shifting um, so it is an uncertain landscape um, i think the best practice to adopt at the moment is to try to be as ambitious as possible and to look at the at least recommended levels of disclosure to try to build capacity internally to try to report this data to uh, streamline the different reporting units within a company and then also try to automate as much as possible that process given that there will be a lot of um, work required to coordinate different departments within the company that have to report those data points and then the entire stakeholder dialogue is an entire um, entirely new dimension of this reporting um, process because on the one hand it's gathering the data and streamlining it but then the reporting to stakeholders to regulators to customers this will be another very important aspect of uh, corporate disclosures so again it's a messy landscape but um, we can see a lot of developments over time with your background Ina, and with your focus on the regulatory uh, landscape what is the challenge 
when there is a lack of data and investors need the data for their investment decisions and for their reporting and they are offered proxies or estimates in the absence of real data. What, what, what do you see as uh, the main challenge with that from a regulatory um, perspective? We have seen various approaches here actually taken by the regulators themselves because in some cases regulators seem to be a little bit more lenient towards adopting a proxy-based um, disclosure approach. But this has now shifted. We've had some recent developments in the taxonomy delegated acts um, and the regulators now specify that reliance on proxies is about to be discouraged because I think they realize that unless we adopt some concrete and um, well-defined standards of reporting, the, the landscape would never change and we would continue to deal with um, estimations, with uncertain data points, with unclarity in the market that is not helping um, investors and financial markets. So this approach is kind of has been evolving as well. Um, we started off with uh, possibly allowing for this kind of um, more lenient approach, but now that is changing in favor of more concrete disclosure requirements and uh, reporting duties. Um, I think we shouldn't also let the perfect be the enemy of the good because we all know that this data is not currently available, but it will become available over time. So as you mentioned, the key point would be how to bridge those gaps in the meantime with the most credible actually reported data points that the markets can use in the meantime, before the actual reported data on the taxonomy, on SFDR, on the new CSRD, the Corporate Sustainability Reporting Directive becomes available. And then this is, of course, just the EU dimension. We have similar developments in the US, Singapore, in Malaysia. Um, so the global regulatory landscape is quite dynamic at the moment. Um, but yeah, back to the point, I think, um, we have to deal with an uncertain landscape today, but this is improving over time. And I think over the next five years, we can see dramatic shifts in the availability, quality, comparability of ESG data that, that will be coming increasingly available uh, by companies and investors. You know, you know I'm a big, uh, big fan of uh, new forms of collaboration in this um... Uh, complex and, and, and challenging world for companies, for investors, for asset managers and, 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 and all the stakeholders. And then I, I foresee uh, new forms of collaborations between companies, their investors, but also academics, uh, academia, uh, you know, working together because these are complex matters. Do you, from a regula regulatory perspective, do you support that type of cross-function cross-sector collaboration to find answers to good quality reporting and disclosing um, information that is that is needed and required I fully support I fully support this collaborative approach because multi-stakeholder dialogue would be essential in fulfilling the goals of not only the Global Sustainable Development Agenda, the Paris Agreement, um, national ESG disclosure efforts, but just really working in silos would not be helpful here because um, we know different stakeholders have different areas of expertise, different focus, um, focus points. So um, bringing together um, 
private sector players, corporates, investors, banks, regulators, NGOs, and academia in um, defining the key issues, the key challenges the market is facing, but also helping to address those challenges through technology, through research partnerships, through more and more uh, open access data sharing. I think this would be crucial in the next stages of implementing the sustainability agenda. Um, so um, this is a very, very important point. And, and again, breaking the silos and collaborating is really the way to go. Great. I had a final question for you, Ina. Uh, with the many different sustainability challenges uh, or even opportunities out there, is there is there an area or a topic that you think should be prioritized? Oh, that's uh, the trillion dollar question. Um, well, if, if I had to pick really one of the key sustainability challenges, I think this would be probably related to overconsumption because I believe the, a lot of other issues are stemming from that um, in terms of even um, social inequality, uh, resource sharing, and uh, issues related to, of course, pollution, biodiversity, and climate change, which is at the core of everything. If we were to somehow address or adjust the overconsumption um drive that we have seen over the last decades and kind of shifted in a more really truly resilient and sustainable direction, I think this would address a lot of the challenges we're facing. Um, but well, it's it's always the perennial debate between keeping the wheels of the global economy moving and um, making sure that the environment and society doesn't uh, don't uh, suffer um, at that expense. Great. Thank you so much, Dr. Ina Amesheva, and uh, thank you for joining me for today's episode of the Decoding Sustainable Finance podcast. You're also welcome to visit our website, arabesque.com, for more information on our regulatory solutions. Now, stay tuned for the next episode, as I will be joined by another colleague, to further decode sustainable finance. Thank you. Thank you, Ricard.